Hi, welcome to Out of the Box Stories. I'm your host, Allison Paradise. Our guest is Bill Porter, Lieutenant in the United States Navy. Bill studied environmental science prior to joining the Navy. And that gives him a unique perspective as someone who has experience both with research and scientific understanding, as well as with the military, and more specifically with the Navy and being on ships. During our conversation, Bill shares his thoughts and his wisdom on sustainability, on our outer world, and also on our inner world. He shares incredible insights into what it means to have confidence and how to trust yourself, how to be present in the moment, concepts and ideas that are universally important for anyone who wants to break free of the limited thinking that usually keeps us back and do something different than what we've been told about what we can do or who we should be. It was an unexpected conversation and it was truly beautiful. I'm so grateful that Bill was able to find the time in his extremely busy travel schedule to join us today. Bill joined me from Norfolk, Virginia, just before he was about to leave on an 18-month tour to Japan. Hi, Bill. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. Oh, it's an honor to speak with you. I'm really, really excited because you're going to be bringing a perspective that we haven't heard yet on this podcast. And I'm really curious to see where this goes. Yeah, me as well. So let's start with where we always start, which is, can you tell us a little bit about your experience working in labs and in sustainability? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say I had, you know, growing up the the normal lab exposure as far as through high school and whatnot. Uh, And then I decided to pursue a major in it when I went to college. Uh, So I studied environmental science and environmental studies, really focusing on a lot of marine sciences specifically uh, in San Diego at the University of San Diego. And uh, from there, right, I once or twice a semester would have a lab and worked in labs for my uh, thesis. And um, that's really where kind of the majority of my exposure and experience to labs happened through college and through my major and through university. And what did you do? What did you study and what kind of work did you do? Yeah, so uh, environmental studies was a pretty broad major for that. Um, so really, I studied anything from sediment samples and earth sciences and geology. We did a lot of work with Mission Bay specifically in, in the Mission Bay uh, area with plankton and plankton samples. And that was actually what I wound up doing my senior, uh, senior thesis on was the population of plankton in Mission Bay in, you know, the year 2017, and then some of the factors that contributed to that, you know, whether it was water flow, uh, we studied light emission, and we studied a lot of the different, as I said, factors to kind of contribute to either the increase or decrease population of plankton in a certain area during that year. Mm-hmm. What drew you to environmental sciences in general, and then in particular that project on plankton? Uh, I've always loved being outdoors, loved the environment, right? I grew up sailing, growing up going outside, going to the beach, and especially drawn to the aquatic side of of nature, I would say. Uh, So that was 
I guess what initially drew me to it was I thought, well, if I can major in something and why not be something that I enjoy doing? I knew I loved being outside and, and connected to something that I felt was larger than myself, right? Which is the environment, right? I love being part of the ecosystem and trying to be a part of it, vice apart from it. So I would say it started out more as an interest in just where I enjoyed being and who I liked being around, which was a lot of that uh, group of people. And socially, I enjoyed the the people that liked similar interests to me, which was the environment. Um, and then as far as why I chose that thesis, uh, I would say it was mostly because I loved my four years in San Diego and everybody, you know, is interested in seals and whales and fish and dolphins. And I kind of wanted to peel that back a little bit and look at a little more one of the ground level uh, species that sometimes, you know, people who don't know about completely or, or have less exposure to that are one of those keystone species that really builds or uh, one of the building blocks for sustainability in that area. And I uh, kind of thought to myself, well, if the population of plankton, if you can tra track the, the population of plankton, what trickle-down effect does that have on the other species, you know, up and down the food chain? And how can that affect the larger ecosystem of Mission Bay, San, San Diego as a whole? So then after college, did you continue doing that research or what did you do? No. So I uh, graduated college and uh, I kind of knew in college at the same time that that was going to be, at least in the short term, where my research end, ended. Um, I wound up commissioning as an officer in the Navy in 2018, did that program through college, through the University of San Diego and NROTC San Diego as a whole, a uh, four-year program in which at the end of it, when I graduated college, I also uh, earned a commission into the United States Navy as an officer. Um, so for the last five years now, I've been commissioned as an officer in the Navy. Okay, so that's a big departure from environmental sciences. Yes. Do you see those two things coming back? Like, do you see yourself doing something more with the environment or with sustainability? Or do you see that just being part of the path to something else? That's a great question. So I would say uh, originally my thought was I was getting my degree from Univers University of San Diego but my ultimate goal was to commission and become an officer in the Navy, right? I didn't know if I was going to make a career out of that, but I knew that in the short term, I wanted that perspective. So my degree came second to my uh, obligation or perceived obligation of becoming an officer in the Navy. And that was where my focus was. So I would say it was almost a means to an end uh, when I was in college. And that's part of the reason I picked that major was it was something I, I loved to do and something that I knew that I had a passion for. And I was less worried about careers afterwards, which really freed me to pursue a major and a passion that I had, considering I wasn't like, where am I going to get my master's or do I have to get a doctorate or am I going to go research route vice, you know, am I going to be fields or labs or, you know, kind of what's my specialty going to be? However, now, you know, five years later, uh, I would say I'm much more interested in the environmental science and the environment and sustainability. And as I get to the end of my, my you know, quote unquote career in the Navy and I start to transition to civilian life, it has been something that has sparked my interest far more. And I'm thinking more and more about whether it's the full-time job or whether it's just a passion project. 
working with the environment and environmental science and sustainability specifically and how we can kind of uh, improve our interaction with the world and the environment as a whole. That's kind of where I, I want to continue to move forward towards. So. so how did that happen? Where did that, what happened over the last five years that that suddenly came to the forefront? Well, I would say, uh, obviously, the difference between a, a 22-year-old and a 27-year-old, uh, you know, male, that's pretty two, five pretty pivotal years. Um, and I've grown as a person. And personally, I feel like I've accomplished the, the goals I've wanted to in the Navy, which has been great. So I, I've, I've accomplished a lot of those goals. I've, uh, set, I've set out to what I wanted to do in the Navy, and I've been able to accomplish what I've wanted to do in the Navy. So I would say that's part of the reason I took a back seat is I've really, I, I've, I feel like I've gotten out of the Navy what I've wanted to, and I feel like the Navy's gotten what it's needed to out of, out of me as well. With that, I also feel that you're on an industrial ship for, you know, weeks, months at a time, sometimes potentially a year at a time, I started to appreciate a lot of things that I took for granted being, you know, younger and being in San Diego or even growing up in New Jersey. So whether it's just me getting older and having different interests and, and different goals for myself as I've kind of crossed certain goals off the list and adapting, or whether it's my experiences that have led to me appreciating the environment a little bit more and getting a little more wise and a little more educated on how the world works and what the, you know, our major issues are moving forward and how humans really have impacted the environment adversely in a whole, you know, slew of different ways. Um, that's just where I've, I've started to, to focus a little in more in on and, and wanted to kind of pursue my, my attention in the future. Okay. I've got two questions. This is so interesting. So first, very few people listening to this will have had any experience being on a ship for any length of time. So can you share what it is that you saw? What did you learn from that experience that then opened your eyes to wanting to spend more time pursuing environmental science or sustainability or something in that space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a, a, a bit of a tricky question to answer because uh, there's a lot of ways I can kind of try to attack that. Um, I'll kind of start out by saying... For me personally, again, grew up in New Jersey. I spent every summer on the water specifically. I grew up sailing competitively uh, and then wound up coaching for five years, which I actually enjoyed more than the, the sailing itself. So I, I definitely spent a lot of time in the environment, a lot of time on the water, and then joined the Navy. And my first, within the first eight months of me being commissioned post-graduation active duty officer in the Navy, I went on its eight-month deployment. And you'd think, well, that must be extremely, you know, nautical potentially, or, you know, you're out to sea all the time. But my joke always was, was that that was the least nautical and the least environmental summer of my life in a lot of ways, because it's an industrial environment being on a Navy ship. Being a surface war warfare officer by trade, right, or a SWO, as we kind of call it for short, I'm in charge of what they say is driving the ship and fighting the ship and then managing the crew uh, with a lot of the senior enlisted personnel. So I was fortunate enough and have been fortunate enough to spend a lot of time on the bridge of the ship, right? So I would say I have extra exposure to the environment compared to most of the ship. But other than those, you know, six hours I'm on watch and then for the rest of the ship, for the rest of the day, you're inside of a, a steel structure, right? That 
is extremely computer generated and very, you know, tight and needy, but there's, there's piping and there's wiring and there's a ton of computer screens just due to the, the nature of the work. It's, you know, technologically advanced and it's no secret, right? But the ships are built for performance, this, you know, and us accomplishing our objectives, vice crew comforts. Obviously, what well, you can, you, you make those crew comforts, but you're out there to do a mission. So, I, 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 miss, I miss being outside, right? I would say deep down inside, I've always had an interest in being outside, and I've always been drawn to the environment, specifically the sea, which is probably part of the reason I went to college in San Diego, apart from, you know, uh, going to a, a school that I liked and uh, being part of the program I wanted to be a part of, both academically and then extracurricularly with the uh, Navy, it's always been something that's been deep down. And I knew I had to, or I knew I wanted to do the Navy and learn as much as I could because it's one of those things where you don't, you don't, you can't speak to it perfectly or no one can understand unless they've done it. And I knew that prior to going into it. So I knew I wanted to see the nitty gritty of it. What's it like to be active duty in the military? What's it like to go overseas? Um, what's it like politically? Because you hear a lot of stuff and you read a lot of stuff, but what, how much of that's fully accurate? What's being undersold? What's being oversold? What's being talked about in order for an alternative motive that you may or may not know about? And though I wouldn't say I know everything because I'm still learning a ton, just like everybody else, uh, I would say these last five years have exposed me to stuff and put me in a challenging position leadership wise and adult wise that I wouldn't have been in otherwise, right? Like I was trusted to lead a division of 20 sailors that are ranging from 18 years old to 40, 45 years old. And automatically I'm in charge of them. I didn't know how the Navy functioned fully, right? Apart from briefs and bracing trainings, um, uh, I didn't know fully leadership stuff other than through the first 22 years of my life. However, you're put in a position where you're now in charge of them and what you have to balance that responsibility. Similarly, I was in charge of driving a warship that was, you know, multi-billion dollar warship at 22, 23, 24 years old. Experiences like that, I, I couldn't get elsewhere. So I would say hopefully that answers your question mostly, right? Because it's a very, it's kind of a long and convoluted answer. But I'm trying to give you as much insight as I can and give a foundation because it is tough to understand or comprehend for those who haven't served in the military or specifically served on ships, which is an even smaller subsect of, you know, the military as a whole. Mm -hmm. I really, really appreciate this and what you're sharing. It's reminding me of a woman I knew in grad school. And this is it's going to take a second, but there's a question in here. When I was in grad school, my second year, a woman came from, I think, the Marines. She was out of 29 Palms. That's the Marines, right? That should be the Marines, most likely. So she'd been in the Marines. She just, she'd actually just come from Japan. And she'd been, she was 30, so she must have been in the Marines for, maybe she'd been there for eight years. And she had, unlike the rest of us who went into grad school kind of right out of college, she didn't have a ton of lab experience. She had been in the Marines for most of her time. And so she came into the lab not really even knowing how to use a pipetter or knowing anything about tissue culture. But what she had and what struck me about her was this incredible 
confidence and knowing that she was going to work it out, that she was going to figure it out. It was unbelievable. And the rest of us had all of this experience. And for the most part, I would say our class was not terribly confident in their abilities. And here's this woman just comes in first day and she's like, I don't know how to do any of this, but yeah, of course I can figure this out. And I loved that about her. And she ended up graduating and I think now she works at the CDC. I feel like that came out of her experience in the Marines. I'm going to just say I'm pretty certain it did. So I'm wondering if you can speak to, you kind of touched on it a bit, but what the difference has been for you being, say, in high school and those first few years of college, how you thought of yourself and your own abilities versus now, five years later? Yeah. So I'll kind of start by saying, uh, generally speaking, and I probably could have said this before the previous one, uh, what I speak to is, you know, Bill Porter's opinion, definitely not the opinion of the entire Navy or or military as a whole. And I can speak to my specific experiences um, and try to articulate that as clearly as I can for you. Uh, But everyone's experience is completely different. Uh, Everyone comes from different homes, different backgrounds, I should say. Uh, And just generally just what you bring to your experience in the military, I would say, is almost as important as your experience inside of the military. Because at the end of the day, at least what I personally believe is Though the military may try to tweak certain personalities in order to uh, help get the best outcome and to make you the best leader possible, intrinsically, how you were raised, what you believe in, your core values tend to shine through, I've seen, right? Like you are still an individual and you still are who you've been your entire life. So I would then, to kind of get to your question more specifically, Without, you know, playing both ends of it, I would say it, it is a mixture of, of, of nature and nurture with that, where I think she probably came into the Marines uh, without knowing her with a certain drive. And I think the military attracts a certain type of person as well. Like most people that are timid wouldn't probably join the military because, and again, not a catch all by any means, but intrinsically knowing what the military is, what the military does, knowing the personnel you're going to be around, knowing that you're going to have to move from place to place potentially, not be in control of what you wear, where you are all the time. A lot of times, you know, what people value most in life, uh, it attracts a certain person and you have to be willing to give that up and accept the fact that you are losing certain liberties to gain certain liberties or to fight for other people's liberties. With that being said, yes, then again, I can speak to the Navy specifically and my friends that are Marines definitely drive hard on the confidence side of the house and the ability to believe in yourself. Because if you can't believe in yourself, then why should others believe in you? And it all gets back to that leadership point I was talking about where in the military, it drives you to be a leader. And a leader doesn't have to be a certain rank. It doesn't have to be a certain rate or MOS for the Marines. Uh, A leader is preached at in the military could, could be anybody, right? And I've heard my captains and I've heard admirals say, you know, right is right. And if you are an E1, which is the most junior person in the military, and you go up to an admiral, and obviously there's different types of 
tact and respect, right? Like you weren't going to go up and publicly say something like, hey, you know, your boots untied, uh, you know, fix yourself to an admiral. That's that's not what I'm talking about. But nobody knows everything. So me as a lieutenant, I could be preaching one way to do something or I could say, hey, the Navy policy is X, Y, and Z based on what I remember. And then a junior sailor, if they're a good junior sailor or any sailor, would come up to me with the publication and say, hey, sir, this is actually what the Navy instruction says. This is the way we're supposed to do it. And then ideally, me as a good leader, don't take that with, you know, against my ego. I accept it and I say, hey, I appreciate it. Thank you. And move forward in that direction. So again, I think it is a bit of what you came in with, but you're always put in a position in the military, uh, at least in the surface Navy, where every job I've had before going to it, and this is, I'm going on my third tour now, I've never done my, that job previously. And I have a foundational baseline training in what that job is, but the Navy specifically and the surface warfare community specifically loves to put you in a position where you could potentially thrive. And they'll try to see your potential in it and maybe I've never, you know, done that job, but if you know where the references are and you know who to trust and you work hard, you will thrive and grow in that, in that position. And that sounds very similar to what you were talking about with your friend that was a Marine. She's never been in a lab before, uh, or it's been, you know, X amount of years and her, she's had an entire life in some case between the times since she was in a lab, but her ability to look at a problem, grow and learn from it. And be able to have that confidence to say, it's okay if I don't know everything. It's okay if I make a mistake. But at the end of the day, that's how you learn, right? Because I am a firm believer and you learn more from your mistakes than you do what you do well. It, it broadens your horizons and gives you more depth and more ability to be more flexible and more universally acceptable. And that Swiss army knife in life where you are a, a jack of all trades. So do you feel for yourself that, that there's any limitation on you when you come out? So if you're going to do something in sustainability, do you in any way ever think about, well, I couldn't or I shouldn't or I'm not able to? Or are you just like, right, I got this? I would say my confidence level is higher than the average person. Uh, I would also say, to be honest, it was probably like that before the Navy. But the Navy has given me confidence in ways that I probably didn't have before. I've been put in positions where I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. I don't know if I'm going to succeed in this, whatever it may be, whether it's being on the bridge of a ship and being, you know, in charge of navigation or whether it's at a smaller unit level where I, my division is tasked with a job, depending on whatever their rate is inside the Navy. And me looking at that situation and thinking to myself, uh, you know, I don't know how we're going to do this or if we're going to be able to get through it. But every time being able to get through it and overcome those hurdles, I think, and you could probably speak to this more than me as far as, uh, you know, like brain-wise and neurologically, but the ability to see a hurdle and to be able to confront it, think of ways around it, have doubts, which it's okay to have doubts, I think, but be able to challenge it and conquer it has a way of changing your brain, right? It, you know, because as your brain's changing, as you're getting older and through every experience where you now have the confidence and competence a lot of the time to be able to overcome that next step. Because I think confidence comes from a couple of things, right? 
experience gives you confidence and with that experience level of knowledge. So if you've done your homework and you've worked as hard as you can and you have that baseline level of knowledge and you grow with the experience of it. And again, that, those are bars that can be balanced at any point. You might have more level of knowledge, less experience, more experience, less level of knowledge, depending on what your pursuit is and what your background is. If you can continue to balance those and work on whatever is weaker and learn from your mistakes and not make anything too detrimental um, and worry more about your process of continuous growth and the process vice the result, because the result can always be luck-based. As far as you can't control, if to use in the Navy as an example, if another ship wants to, you know, turn into me and, and, and try to ram us, I can't control that, right? Or if my division somehow messes up and I have no say in it at all, absolutely, it just totally, you know, it's just unlucky, that's unluck. So I can sit there and work on my division and be a great division officer, a great department head, and someone's going to mess up, that's unlucky. I can be a terrible leader, a terrible division officer, a terrible department head, or whatever you know vicinity you're in, and your people can wind up being great, and then they think you're great, right? I don't think neither of those results you should base your own personal happiness, your own personal success, or own personal efficacy on. I think what you should focus on is your, your, your mindset and your growth and your approach more so than the result, because the results will come one way or another as long as your process is good. You know, this all sounds very freeing. It's the exact opposite of what I would have expected the military to be. Because what you're describing, I mean, I'm not sure if that's how you experience it, but from what it sounds like, it's almost like you're freed of the, of the limitations and the doubts that usually hold us back. So, yeah, I think whether... What I just explained in somewhat, you know, good detail or somewhat deep detail uh, is real or it's my justification in order to have that artificial confidence. Uh, I guess the future we'll see, right? But um, I would say even fake confidence to a certain extent can be a positive thing. It could also be a negative thing, you know, because hubris and cockiness is never a good thing and that's always a tough balance because you have to know when you're over your head and you and to a point of danger or uh whether it's self-danger or danger in others um and don't get me wrong the military as i was once told is a results-based entity and it is you either accomplish the mission or you don't you either get where you need to safely on a surface ship or you don't you either properly launch whatever missile gun it is into whatever target is practice or whatnot or you don't Right. So all that is great, what I just explained, but I, I, I don't want to uh, be too far off. The, you know, the, the real goal is, is, is you do want to strive for that result because it's great to have that mindset. But I, I just want to make sure I am clear with I would say that that mindset is great in a training environment and an environment where you have the luxury of learning and growing and making a mistake. Um, and what that'll do is it'll give you the foundation and the tools necessary when you are in a position where you have to perform in any field, right? Whether that's being a politician or a public speaker or a teacher and giving that lecture, right? You can have that mindset all you want, but if at the end of the day you totally fumble your way through it or make mistakes, it's great, but you, you need to have that results to balance it out. So 
again, to answer your question, it is, I do think it is freeing because you're putting, you, I think people need to take the pressure off themselves to be perfect um, and take the pressure off themselves to strive for something that's either unattainable or that someone else has done, right? One of my favorite sayings that a mentor once told me is comparison is the thief of joy. Whereas if you are always comparing yourself to somebody else or your group to another group, uh, you're missing out on a large portion of life or a large aspect of life that is appreciating and embracing the imperfections of your moment. Because you could be looking at, you know, if you're in a relationship, right, with somebody and you enjoy it, but then you go look at your friend, Joe, you know, for example, Joe's relationship with Sally may have certain attributes that yours don't, right? Maybe they love to work out together and maybe your girlfriend doesn't love working out. And then you think to yourself, wow, Joe is so lucky that him and Sally work out together. All that negativity or all that comparison is taking away from what your relationship actually is. And that energy that's being used towards focusing on something that's not could be used to focusing that actually is happening with you right now. And you're missing out on some of the good things that you and Sally have, or you and your girlfriend have, Vice, Joe and Sally, or whoever the relation, other relationship you're talking about is. So... Uh, I think it's important to try to live outside of yourself and to be observant as much as you can, but appreciate what you have and focus on what you can control and appreciate every aspect of life, whether it's good or bad, because at the end of the day, those, those both those, right, even though good is perceived as something desirable and bad as perceived as something undesirable, both of those are two halves of the same coin that formulate the entire experience. I love this because I have no idea where things are going to go. And that was so beautiful. I think such an important thing for all of us to remember, that bit about comparison, because it's, it feels like a trap. The minute you start comparing yourself to other people, that's, that's all your energy is spent on that. And then you never spend any time on yourself. And the only thing that's real, what is, is you in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, there's, there's a book that I read, uh, Stumbling on Happiness by Dr. Daniel Gilbert. And without misquoting him or, or doing him injustice, pretty much what the book says is we, because we do the same thing with, with the past and the future as we do real-time linear comparisons, one person to another, where it's often understood that people misperceive the present right? You go look in the corner and you're like, ah, a snake and it's a rope. Or you think that someone's happy and they're upset or whatever it may be. Our, our perception of the present isn't perfect. It's better than anything that we have, other thing we have, but it's still not something that's uh, infallible, right? It's, it's definitely got a lot of flaws. We misremember the past, right? That car was blue. No, that car was red, right? There's a ton of st studies done scientifically and psychologically about how uh, we shape our past and somebody could say something to you that rewires your memory from the past or um, you just don't remember it as it is because you remember it as you want it to be or, you know, for better or worse, just because that's the way our brain functions. We don't remember the entire past either. We remember, you know, thumbs up, thumb down, good meal, bad meal, but you don't remember every bite of that, you know, that that pad thai you had or whatever it may be. You just remember your general experiences. Um, but what he says in the book is, if we misperceive, excuse me, if we misremember the past, if we misperceive the present, then how can we ever really properly predict the future? 
which I think to me is something I've really tried to to live by recently. Um, and it goes into the comparison a little bit with we spend our entire lives, most people, thinking about the future and what's going to make us happy. And if I just get to this next, you know, mark, if I just once I get to college, once I graduate college, for me, once you're commissioned to the Navy, once you have this next job as the navigator or whatever your job is you want to be, once you're out of the Navy, once you have – it can continue to go on and on and on and on and on. Um, and you build those perceptions of the future based on how you feel now in the present and your memories in the past. And you project that into the future and as far as like this is what I want to do because this is going to make me ultimately happy. But it's never truly the case. Uh, it can help a little bit, but it's not going to be as accurate as it is in your head. So I think that also ties in very heavily to the comparison of others and being able to just be present in the moment, enjoy what you have, because, again, another great quote is, you know, the future is a mystery, the past is history, but now is a gift. And that's why I call it the present, right? Is because it really is like at the end of the day, you can set yourself up as best you can for success, but if you're always living for the future and you're always just investing all of the money you have in the future, the future never comes, right? You're only living in the present. So if you enjoy the present and every day in the present, you'll always enjoy your future because the future becomes the present. Excuse me, because the present becomes the future. You also, I find for myself, if, I, if I'm not constantly living in the future, that the time slows down. So the present really stretches a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And your ability to then be in the present becomes easier. Yeah. Because it's so, I don't know, I, you can't all see my hands, but I'm making kind of like a taffy or like a silly putty elongation because that's what it feels like. And then it cradles you in that very long moment. It feels like it lasts an eternity. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, a, a good example from my personal experience with this is my first deployment, right? To kind of tie it a little bit back to just the, my military experience. Um, you sit there and uh, metaphorically speaking, you're looking up at the mountain, right? And you're like, oh my God, how am I going to accomplish this? How am I going to spend seven months on this ship, you know, every day getting, you know, We'll call it five to seven hours of sleep a night, having to get your qualifications and take care of yourself, but run through your division and all the responsibilities you have, you just want it to go by, okay? And you just want it to, you know, end, if you will. Um, and there's a saying, right, where the days feel long, the weeks feel somewhat long, but the months fly by. <laughs> and in a way, you almost want, I think in a, in a healthy mindset, you almost want that to be that, – that's good in a certain sense, but you kind of want the opposite sometimes too where you don't want to feel like, wow, these last two years flew by because you didn't appreciate being in the moment. You want to experience everything to its fullest, whether it's good or bad. Be present. It might not be the best situation you're in right now, right, depending on what it is. You might not be uh, in a job that you love or – you know, you have to sit in this lecture for class, or maybe it's even a relationship that you want to be somewhere else than it is in this moment. But if you're not appreciating it for what it is, not what you want it to be, then you're missing out on what it is to be present and you're missing out on a portion of your life and you're going to wind up sitting back 5, 10, 20, 30 years from now and not 
experiencing life to its fullest. Um, whether that's, I guess, a good experiences or bad experiences. And if you wind up sitting back and thinking, or in the moment, if you're like, I, I, I can't think of a way to embrace it, then find a way to get out of that situation. Because then that that is, that is if there's no other sign for you to try to be, put yourself in a better situation, whether it's who you're with or what you're doing, then that, then I, I don't know what, what could be a better sign than not finding any way to appreciate and embrace the moment you're in, no matter how good or bad it is. Assuming that it's controllable, right? There's a lot in life that's not controllable that um, is unfortunate, but. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly that. That it's such good information that if you can sit and be present and notice how you feel, then you can do something with that. If you're always in the future or in the past and not aware of how you feel, then it's almost impossible to to do anything differently. Yeah. And I think at the core of of this entire journey with this podcast is talking about doing something different. And the only way you can really do something different is if you're at all aware of what you're doing in the first place, which means being present to yourself. Absolutely. We only have so much bandwidth. So if you spend that bandwidth or that, you know, mental, uh, however you want to call it, that, that mental strain on things that you either can't control or they shouldn't worry about controlling, whether again, that's the future or the past or whether that's another person's relationship or another person's situation that they have, you're taking it away from you being present, just like you said, and your ability to dissect the moment and to appreciate the moment which hurts your ability to make the proper decisions in life to make you as happy as you can be or the people around you as happy as they can be because you're just not giving your entire self to the moment. And if you don't do that, like we're saying, it really does take away from your ability to, to live life to the fullest, which takes away from the ability to enjoy life to the fullest. And you're spending your, your bandwidth on stuff that's not worth it. Yeah, exactly. And you can miss whole, whole swaths of your existence being constantly in that future state, being stressed. I think about, there's two examples that come to my mind with this. And one of them that's really close to me is my mother. When we were kids, she worked so much and was always living by the calendar. So whatever whatever was happening wasn't what was happening in her mind. It was tomorrow. It was the next day. It's what's happening on Saturday, what's happening a month from now, right? Every conversation was about what's next. None of the conversations were about what's here. And as a result, when when I talk to her about my childhood, there are big parts of it where she'll go, I don't remember that happening at all. And I'm like, for real though, that was a huge thing. Like that was a monumental thing that happened not just for me, but everybody else in our family remembers. And she has no memory of it because she was constantly living in this tomorrow state. And this is not a judgment on her. I think it was I think it's very, very difficult for most people to live in this present state, particularly when you're a parent, particularly when you're working. This is really I understand. <laughs> I yeah. can really understand. But it's just to illustrate how then you get to a place where you were just speaking about how you can misremember the past. 
and misperceive the present because if you're not here, you're not going to remember anything that happened and you're not going to be present to what's happening now. I think you, you touched on a really good point too there, which is I, I, this is stuff that everybody struggles with, right? Like it's very easy for me to sit here on the podcast and to talk to you about it and it's all like rainbows and I'm going to tell you, you know, this is what I've learned in, in my 27 years of experience in life. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, this is something that I struggle with every day, and I, I'm fortunate to say more times than not, I don't follow the own advice that I try to give myself, right? Um, but it's so what I just try to do is, you know, not live with that perfection to kind of circle it back to what we talked about earlier in the sense that if every time you catch yourself living for the future or comparing, you get flustered or frustrated or consider yourself a failure, you you're going to wind up giving up and stop trying. So being okay with that, just like we mentioned earlier, kind of with the confidence thing, being letting yourself fail and rather having a judgment towards it and being like, that was dumb of me or that's frustrating or how am I not better? And we've talked about this self. You should really be more, you know, I, I just try to be aware of it and think more, wow, that was interesting, right? Like, like, cause if you're less judgmental to yourself, you gotta be kind to yourself cause you know, you're, you're, we're all sensitive beings. So if you find a way to have a less judgmental, more, you know, that that's interesting type of, oh, okay, I, I'm aware of that. Let's try to not do that again, you know, in the future or tomorrow. Uh, I think it's a more sustainable long-term process and to bring it home too with what you're saying. So you mentioned one thing my mom taught me, cause you mentioned your mom. She was a huge Warren Zevon fan, the musician who died in the early 2000s at like 56 and um, of cancer. And when he was dying of cancer, right, he was on David Letterman. And David Letterman's like, Warren, what, what do you have for us, right? What great bit of wisdom can you give us now that, you know, you've been, had all the success in life, you've had a great life, and now all of a sudden, you know, you found out two weeks ago you're going to die in the next couple months of cancer. What do you have for us? And he kind of, he's a little cheeky. And he said, uh, enjoy every sandwich. And that's something my mom tells me every once in a while. And that really hits home because it's, it's so simple, but it goes back to that conversation as far as living in the present. Whereas if you're able to enjoy every sandwich, right, metaphorically or literally speaking, it, it gives you a new perspective on life because otherwise you're continuously raising that bar for enjoyment right? Where sometimes it doesn't have to be a $20,000 vacation to wherever it is your, you know, your dream spot or a marriage or the birth of a kid or a brand new car to give you that enjoyment. If it's the little things that give you the enjoyment, you appreciate the little things more and you don't have to, you reestablish your baseline, if you will, and you don't have to have those great, huge lifetime events just to get you to a point of enough dopamine to make yourself enjoy wherever you're at in life. So... Yeah. Again, very, very well said. I worked for a while with a mathematician in Austria on a book on consciousness. And when we first started working together, food was one of the first ways that he started teaching me about presence. We went out for a meal in Santa Barbara to the sushi restaurant that I love. And I was so excited to share this with him because I love this restaurant. I take my first bite and I'm like, oh my gosh, isn't this great? And he just looks at me and he goes, puts his finger to his lips. And he said to me, I don't talk when I'm eating. And I said, okay, this is going to be awkward for me, but I can do this. <laughs> I hardly know this person. So we sit there in silence for the whole meal. 
And the waiter keeps coming back, kind of looking at us, wondering, are we now in a fight? Like, what's happened? Because we were chatting right before. Humans don't like silence. Humans are real awkward with silence. It's amazing. If you if you just don't talk for like 20 seconds, the other person starts asking you, what's wrong? What's going on? Are we okay? Like, it's, it's amazing what your mind starts to do if there's a little bit of silence in that room. It's incredible. It was such a wonderful experience, though, because we must have eaten, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes, whatever it was in complete silence. And for as much as I raved about that food, I hadn't tasted it before that time. And as much as I felt like I was drawn to working with this person, I didn't actually feel how strong that connection was until we were just sitting there. And all of that just really opened up my eyes to exactly what you said. If you enjoy every sandwich, everything in that way, being present with just that thing, it completely changes your experience with it. And it's, I wouldn't say it was necessarily a feeling of happy or sad. It was more of a feeling of, oh, whoa, like, whoa, have I been missing a lot. I've been asleep. That sucks. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I think... Like a good indicator for me when I'm not living the way I want to or when I get so spun up in society and pressures and the world and my job or whatever it is, and this is a little, you know, a little bit of looking behind the curtain on me, uh, when I start to have more and more meals in my car. On the way back from work, I'll stop at Wawa, you know, as a, all good Jersey boys should, um, and get myself like, you know, whatever it is I'm getting there, and I just sit there and eat in the car. Uh, that's kind of, for me personally, an indicator of, okay, you know, things have, I don't want to say gotten out of hand, but this is a good time to take a step back, reassess the situation I'm in, reassess my headspace. What are my priorities? What do I enjoy? And really look at my life and kind of have a deep dive of, do I have to be doing what I'm doing? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Right? Why am I sitting here eating in, in the car when I could, even if it's as simple as go out to a restaurant and eat by yourself and just observe everybody around you and enjoy the meal, right? Or, or just eat something and have, you know, prepare something for yourself that's made out of a little more love or have somebody else, you know, prepare for you, even if it's at a restaurant or whatnot, that's a little more appreciative because it just, it's not doing you any justice at that point. And it's feeding the negative attributes and the negative side of your life vice uh, the positive side. So something as simple as that, I totally agree with. And that's a great story that you told because uh, I eat, you know, I'm a talker. I talk fast. I'm from Jersey. I, you know, I'm all about the conversation. Um, but I'm going to try to do that, you know, next time I'm at a restaurant and just kind of sit there and enjoy my meal a little bit because that's, yeah, that's definitely something that I think everybody can do. And it's those little things, right? Small hinges move big doors. It doesn't have to be some major, you don't have to necessarily quit your job and go live somewhere else in total retreat. You can if you want, and if that serves you, like, absolutely, if that's what you want to do and you're that type of person. But it doesn't have to be some huge, huge change. It could be little things that you do in your life that help step towards something that's closer to the truth. And even if you never get there, right, which, spoiler alert, you probably never will. I know I never will, right? You're never going to get to that final destination of where you want to be because it's about the journey and not the result. But 
it'll at least get you somewhere a little closer. And, may, and that one decision will lead to two decisions, and that two decisions will lead to more decisions, and, and you will find that you, you're going to wind up being in a better place than you were previously. But that's what life's about. It's about the little decisions here and there. It's about the, the dead space between words, as you're saying. And it's about embracing something that you might not like in the moment, but embracing it and, and finding a way to make it positive and round out your whole experience. Because as I was talking to my one friend about a couple of years ago, Right. And he was going through a breakup and he was saying, you know, how it sucks and all this stuff. But I just remember saying to him, because we both enjoy movies and, and good books and a good story, really. I said, name one character in a movie, character in a book, you know, anything in media or whatnot that didn't have a little bit of adversity to it. And you, you're not going to like it. Right. You don't want your life to be perfect. You think you do, but you don't because then you won't appreciate it as much. And again, like my his his dad wound up dying a couple of years ago as well and talking to him at the funeral. And it was a very, you know, obviously sad and it was, it was hard, you know, for everybody, but especially obviously for him and trying to be there for my friend. And, uh, we were talking and I, I said to him, I said, would you take away every good memory and experience you had with your dad to make you less sad now? Right. Would you give up every happy moment and all your memories to be less sad? And he's like, well, of course not. And I was like, well, those happy moments are why you are sad. If your dad wasn't part of your life or if you didn't know your dad and all of a sudden you got a letter in the mail, hey, your dad died, you would not feel the same emotions. You might feel what could have been and you know what I mean, what if, but the only reason you're sad in that moment is because you were happy. It's all about that relativity and that comparison. So whenever something like that happens and you think to yourself, wow, I'm so sad, just think, would I give up all those happy moments with that person? Right, whether it's a relationship ending, whether it's someone passing away, whether it's you moving on, a new career, a new job, whatever it may be, that sadness and that, you know, situation is still part of the whole experience with them, and it's a way of balancing it all out and you appreciating what you had with them, because life's relative. I really appreciate how much you speak about gratitude. That seems to be missing, I think, a lot from the the ways that we talk about our lives, just how, how much we have to really be grateful for in every moment. I'm really grateful to have this conversation with you. Likewise. I'm so appreciative that you're here and all the wisdom that you've shared and the perspective that you've shared. And to be here in this, this house by the water as I listen to a, an ice storm, how cool is that? It just doesn't take very much, really. It's a bit of kind of what we're told, I think, that gets in the way. Because if no one ever told you that ice storms were bad, you might see how beautiful they really are, you know? Absolutely. It's like, they. Uh, what do they say that? Lobster used to be given to prisoners, you know what I mean? And nobody liked it back then. And all of a sudden, some people started to eat it and then it became wealthier and wealthier. And now it's like the delicacy, right, of food. But that's what it is. If people tell you, people in life tend to tell you what to like and what not to like based on their experiences or the past. One more little metaphor for you that I've, I've, I've always really tried to appreciate in life and that's kind of helped me uh, is when an elephant's younger. And I think this actually also is in uh, Something on Happiness by Dr. Daniel Gilbert, that book. So... Uh, definitely give it a read if you kind of like generally speaking where it's a lot of what I'm talking about because it's it's good. But uh, when when elephants younger and being trained in captivity, what it'll do is they will take a rope and tie it around its neck or tie it around its leg. Okay, 
Uh, it'll try to pull and escape days, weeks, even months. It is unable to because it's too, it's too small. It's too weak. Uh, as that elephant gets older, they use the same rope, the same stake in the ground, the same pole or the same whatever. Okay. It stops trying. That elephant is more than strong enough to get out but it doesn't realize it because it's tied back by its past, its perceptions of reality, its fears, right? All of that. Uh, I think, and again, not, none of this is original thoughts. I should, you know, caveat with this is all stuff that I've read or learned or, or try to experience through other people that are much wiser than myself. But as Dr. Daniel Gilbert says in that book, that's what humans are with most of the things in life. Not everything, right? Don't go jump off a skyscraper because you think that you could fly. Okay, but at the end of the day, most of what holds you back is in your own head, which again, circling back one more time, kind of that I think that's part of the reason that, you know, some people have more confidence than others is because you, if you if you think that most things can't hold you back or if you have that confidence going into it, I think it changes your entire perspective and perception of the situation. And what that can do is it opens up a whole new variety and a whole new colors, right? A whole new palette, you know, for that painter or whatever it may be, because you're no longer playing, you know, the game with ankle weights on. You're not living life with ankle weights on. You're not living life tied to that post anymore because you realize that this, you know, it could be religion. It could be job. It could be relationship. It could be mindset. It could be anything is holding you down when you really thought it was helping you or you had it for security. It's really holding you down at the end of the day. There really is nothing that we can't do. That's just the feeling I have about it. And once you really start to feel into that and see that, it's just this sort of this limitless potential for all of us. That's so exciting. You know what I mean? Like, that's so exciting. <laughs> it is. How could you not wake up every day and be like, oh my gosh, how lucky am I? But we, we live for a lot of the wrong reasons a lot of the time, right? We live to make other people happy, right? Where Whether that's friends, whether that's society, whether that's our parents, right? Or even our kids, which is, I would say, the least evil of, of those, if you will, if, you know? But at the end of the day, there's, life is so much to offer. So if you're not enjoying life, either first, I would say, change your mindset. And if that doesn't work, change your situation, but I think at the end of the day, it's your mind over your situation the majority of the time because it's so much easier to sit there and be like, it's my job. It's my spouse. It's my car that I, once I get this car, you know, it's, it's everything around me. It's all my friends. They're the ones being mean to me when in reactuality, you know, everyone looks to change the world, but nobody looks to change themselves. And it is so much easier to sit there and blame everyone and everything else than it is to think, well, maybe it's me. Right. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm the issue in this situation. Right. Maybe, maybe it's not my job. Um, and maybe I, I might be happier in another job. Sure. That may be true. But at the end of the day, you're using that as an excuse because you don't want to do the hard work. The hard work is sitting there and looking in the mirror. Right. That's the hardest thing there that you can do and to be self-reflective. It is much, much easier to blame your circumstances and your surroundings. Right. And I just, if you live life with a motto of instead of going out and trying to attack everything or grab everything that you want, more the motto of being that, that metaphorical flower that blooms and then it attracts the bee, right? The, the, if most flowers aren't like Venus flytraps where it's out there, you know, attacking that, that fly, okay? You be that flower that blooms and you work on yourself 
and then you have to do a lot less work to be happy, okay, and to be, you know, beautiful, whatever that means to you, because you're going to wind up in the life and the situation you want to be in. I cannot thank you enough for this. Really. Thank you so much for being here. I have an idea. Okay. Why don't we sit in silence for, let's say, a minute and see what that feels like? And everybody who's listening, try to just stay with us for a minute. See what that is. Okay. You ready? Yes. Three, two, one. Okay. So how do you feel now? Uh, I feel present, which I think is the best feeling to have because it's a non-judgmental, non-binary, right, way of saying that to feel present and to feel alive is probably one of the most underappreciated and underutilized places to be. So, you know, just being able to experience everything as it comes to you with without a filter or a lens is hard because you feel it more deeply, but that's also, at least in my uh, humble, unbiased, unprofessional opinion, the best way for it to be. I have loved this conversation. Thank you so, so much. Awesome. Thank you. And I just want to take a second real quick to thank you for everything you're doing, both with this podcast, with your works, with, you know, your labs and all and whatnot, as far as the uh, Mind Green Lab and with Everything else you're doing, I'm sure you don't hear it enough, but thank you for being who you are. Thank you for being present. Thank you for everything you're doing. Um, and I hope, look forward to work with you hopefully more in the future. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And me too. I, I, this was our first conversation, and I hope it is the beginning of many. Yeah, I think it will be without looking into the future too much. I feel like it might be. Okay, so then to be continued. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. 